People I Mostly Admire is sponsored by Ramp. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp is easy to use. Get started and start making payments in less than 15 minutes. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com admire. That's R-A-M-P dot com slash admire. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. My guest today, Maya Shunker, is a great example of how with the right mix of talent, confidence, and doggedness, anything is possible. Welcome to People I Mostly Admire with Steve Levitt. But only in her 20s, Maya built from scratch the Obama administration's social and behavioral sciences team. That's the U.S. government's first systematic attempt to integrate behavioral economics into its policies. It's a U.S. version of the highly successful British Nudge Unit, which was launched by Prime Minister David Cameron in 2010 and named after Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein's hugely impactful book, Nudge. She also served as the first behavioral science advisor to the United Nations, and more recently as a global director of behavioral sciences at Google. Still only in her early 30s, Maya might be the youngest guest I've had so far on this podcast, and I'm guessing she will bring a big dose of youthful enthusiasm. I first became aware of you when you were put in charge of the social and behavioral sciences team in the Obama administration. How old were you when that team was created with you as the leader? I think I was either 26 or 27. I had no public policy experience at all. I was an academic. I was doing a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience at Stanford at the time. Had you ever had a real job? Never had a real job. Okay, your first job was running an agency in Washington? Yes, it was. What happened is I pitched the White House on creating a new position for a behavioral scientist, and then I just made it my mission to create a team because I don't think I was totally qualified for the gig. So you just wrote an email to whitehouse.gov and said, my name is Maya and I would like to be your advisor. (laughs) And they said, sounds great. Or how did that work? I still remember this one moment where I was in the basement of an fMRI laboratory. It was probably my fourth or fifth hour scanning people's brains. And this guy came in, and within minutes, I'm peering into this person's brain. And I'm thinking to myself, 
Given my personality, I feel like the order of operations is wrong here. I don't know whether this person has children, what his job is, what his favorite ice cream flavor is. I quickly realized that maybe scanning people's brains was not exactly the right choice for me and that I wanted to do something that was a bit more social, working on teams. And so I ended up chatting with my undergraduate advisor, Laurie Santos. I'm sure you're familiar with her. She has this great podcast called The Happiness Lab. And she was my mentor starting from the time that I was a freshman. And I said, Laurie, what do I do? And she said, there's this amazing work that's happening in the White House right now where they are using insights from behavioral economics to help enroll low-income students into the free lunch program. The government offers this amazing program for kids to be able to eat at school, but millions of kids were still going hungry because the form was really burdensome and there was a stigma associated with signing your kid up for a public benefits program. The government used the power of defaults, and they basically used existing administrative data on these kids to automatically enroll them in the school lunch program. So now parents only had to take an active step if they wanted to unenroll their kids, not enroll them. And as a result of this policy change, over 12 and a half million more kids were now eating lunch at school every day. And it was a light bulb moment for me. I thought, oh my gosh, I really want to do this kind of work. I want to be a practitioner of behavioral science. But I had no connections in the political sphere. So I sent a cold email to Cass Sunstein. He is the co-author of Nudge, and he had served as the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Obama White House. I just said, I'm a postdoc. I've published nothing of significance. I have no public policy experience. I even wrote in the email, Steve, that I didn't think I was, quote, cool enough to work with the likes of Obama. And so if there was a state or local government opportunity, I'd be totally game for that. (laughs) And thankfully, Cass ignored all of the insecurities and connected me with President Obama's science advisor. And so a week later, I was pitching my soon-would-be boss on the idea of building out a new role for a dedicated behavioral scientist in the White House. So eventually you have this job. It doesn't sound like it comes with a very big budget or a lot of supporting staff. Actually, it came with zero budget. There was no mandate, no resources of any kind. This felt like I was trying to build a startup in my parents' basement, genuinely. I had to be as creative as I possibly could when it came to tactics. For example, the only way that I was going to get government agencies to work with me on behavioral science pilots is if my colleagues could see the value of this work firsthand. It would be far more compelling if they saw that this was improving their programs and policies than if I just tried to convince them with beautiful prose in some sort of policy document. This involved basically knocking on every door that I could in government saying, hey, let's try to align incentives here. What problems are you already trying to solve? And now let me brainstorm based on the tools in my toolbox as to how I can help you achieve those goals. And one way that I tried to build a lot of excitement around these early behavioral pilots was to organize this meeting with a lot of luminaries from academia. So Danny Kahneman was there and also luminaries within the federal government. I created an admissions ticket for the meeting, a one or two page proposal about a behavioral pilot that you would be able to implement within the next three months. 
And I would work with these folks on these proposals in advance of the meeting. It really generated a lot of enthusiasm. We probably got about 50 proposals in the door as a result. And of course, everyone wanted to come. They're like, I want to meet Danny Kahneman. He's a legend <laughs> in the field. And so that was a nice way of actually incentivizing people to take the risk of running a randomized control trial, in some cases using behavioral science for the first time. Let me go back, though, because you're a lone wolf in the White House. You have no budget. And then the next thing I heard, you had a conference with 50 different proposals from government agencies. There must have been something in between. I was just relentless. I left no stone unturned. And I engaged with people at all levels of government. So, of course, I engaged with political appointees, but I really tried to tap into the expertise of civil servants, people who had spent decades in the federal government and really understood the veterans' experience, really understood the student loan borrower's experience, really understood what it's like to be a low-income student who's struggling in school. And I tried to gin up their enthusiasm for this work and also to learn in return exactly where the most promising opportunities were. And, and let me tell you, the denominator was massive. For every hundred conversations I had, it would lead to one potential collaboration. That's a pretty good ratio, better than I might have expected. And my own experience is that the lower you go in the organization, the better the information you get. I remember when I did management consulting right after college, my job was to try to get this drug approved at the FDA. And I was used to hanging out with the top people, the head of R&D mm. and things like that. But what I learned is that if I got really into the guts of the organization, the people who were designing the studies and who analyzed the data, they knew all the answers. Somehow nobody ever asked them what they thought or what they knew I found just giving them attention and respect was the secret to everything in making things happen. I completely agree. I felt like the civil servants were an untapped resource, working very closely with people who had been in the government for decades and were planning to be in the government for future decades was a key to the team's success because it would mean that every time a new project idea emerged, these colleagues of mine were already bought in. They already felt ownership of the process. And our initial pilots would naturally evolve into sustained multi-year collaborations with government agencies. In my mind, I'm seeing an army of civil servants lining up behind you, excited to change things, excited to do the hard work it would take to make the programs really great. But my own experience, both in government and in private sector, is that mostly people just want to do today what they did yesterday and mm -hmm. people like you are so annoying. But when people <laughs> like you come around with enthusiasm and really want to change things, it just makes life hard. Did you run into a lot of that resistance? Oh, my gosh. All the time. I remember sending an email to the Department of Education in 2014 proposing an idea. And they wrote back saying, yeah, absolutely. We can try this in 2017 when our contract renews. <laughs> okay. Oftentimes, there's very little upside for a government employee to take risks in their job. For example, maybe it's revealed through our randomized control trial that their program isn't as effective as they think. And like you said, it can be annoying to be the one saying, hey, try this new thing, try this new thing. I would basically 
go to the annual budgets, figure out what agencies were already being tasked with or were already deciding they wanted to accomplish, and then working with secretaries, people at all levels of government to try to figure out how insights from our field could help them achieve those existing goals. That was the only workable model. If I had come in and introduced a new goal, a new outcome metric, no way in hell we would have gotten anything done. Had I come in and I was a top-ranking official and I just issued a mandate, sure, we might have been effective in those four years, but I'm not sure it would have inspired the kind of lasting cultural change that we continue to see today in government agencies. I think that's a really wise insight because I did a consulting firm with Danny Kahneman and others, and we generally came in at this top level. The CEO would say, hey, I would love to hire Kahneman Levitt to go do this. But the middle-level managers would almost always fight us tooth and nail mm. until they finally, just through a war of attrition, outlasted us. And so we rarely got anything done. The problem is, honestly, it is the most painful, unpleasant task imaginable to go knock on hundreds of doors and try to build groundswell support for things. It's a really scarce resource to find someone who's both visionary and willing to do that kind of work. Maybe you have to be 26 <laughs> to be willing to do those things. Absolutely. It was very hard work, absolutely demoralizing at times. When you get 80 no's, you're not sure actually that the 81st time you're going to get a yes. You don't have that hindsight telling you, keep at it, Maya. There were so many times where I thought, there's no way this is going to be successful. I'm one person trying to get the entire federal government and Obama leadership bought into this mission. But I will say some of my most emotionally touching experiences certainly came from working with civil servants. And a good example of this is I met a woman named Rosemary Williams who worked in the Department of Defense. And she had worked in the department for years. And she was just on the cusp of retirement. And then a month into partnering with us, she said, I no longer plan to retire. You guys have ignited a fire in me that government can, in fact, be innovative. And she started taking executive education classes. I mean, we saw that happen so many times where people were so excited about behavioral science and it led them to new career paths. And, and another example of this, I remember working with a team at the Department of Veterans Affairs. We were trying to get veterans signing up for an employment and educational counseling benefit that they were eligible for after their years of service. But very few veterans were signing up. And so we were working with the VA. They said, look, we basically have no budget. Fine, we're okay working with you, but you can only change this one email. Instead of telling vets that they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. So this is a play on the endowment effect. We might value things more if we own them or feel we have earned them. And that led to a 9% increase in access to the benefit. Now, that was a fun result, but actually the true victory was getting the VA to run the first A-B test it had ever run. They threw a pizza party when they got their early results, and it was so exciting and energizing for this community to now have built the technological apparatus that would let them use randomized control trials in the future. So you probably don't know this about me, but I am a skeptic when it comes to behavioral economics. Oh, I knew this about you, Steve. Don't worry. And I <laughs> okay. still agree to do this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> For the most part, I think that the behavioral stories, they sound great and they often work well in contrived settings and lab experiments. But with a notable exception of choosing defaults, it seems to me that mostly the 
impacts of behavioral interventions turn out to be small? First of all, I absolutely agree with you. I think your skepticism is well-founded. It's a humbling space to work in the application of behavioral science because fundamentally, behavioral economics isn't that powerful in a lot of contexts. So our focus was working on lifting barriers for people who wanted to sign up for a program or take a specific action, but weren't doing so because they didn't have access to clear information or they were deterred by small frictions or features of the program. When you went to Washington, were you as aware of the limitations in behavior science or did you learn along the way how hard it was to make change? I think I was certainly aware of some limitations, certainly that a lot of the effect sizes might be small, especially because in that first year I was in, quote, proof of concept mode. We had all these grand ambitions of serious program change. You're actually changing incentives. You're changing the structure of choices. You're changing the default design of the policy. But that was all only going to come after I built a strong business case for why the team ought to exist in the first place. And all of that work fell much more in the domain of small tweaks. But of course, many of those effects are modest. That said, if the government were to adopt at scale many of these behavioral insights, and you aggregate all of those smaller results, that can mean millions of people who now have access to a benefit who didn't previously. And so the scale of the government is what buoyed my enthusiasm, because even when you'd see a 3% increase in something, you would also know that was 80,000 veterans, for example. Yeah, the scale is a huge, powerful factor. I run a little center here at the University of Chicago called RISC, and what we've ended up doing over and over is partnering with usually really big firms Mm -hmm. because even if we can make only a little impact, if we're working with a firm that touches 50 million people, we have a lot bigger impact than we would have if we tootled along on our own. So could you just give us examples of the big wins you had and what was the value of them? So when I was first conceiving the team, The vision of the behavioral sciences team that I'd had was to help actually make the programs themselves easier to access or change the way the programs were administered or structured so that instead of helping people navigate complicated choices, you actually just make the choices simpler or you offer better choices. One example of this was with the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense was really eager to drive military enrollment in the government's retirement savings plan. But unlike their civilian counterparts, they were not automatically enrolled into these plans. You'd see roughly 87% enrollment among among civilian government employees, but you'd only see about 42% among military service members. The ideal behavioral economics solution would be to just change the default setting. Now, at the outset of our time, that was very difficult to achieve. You can imagine that pitching people on a substantial change in retirement policy for 1.3 million employees is a hard sell on day one. So we started with a pilot in which we prompted an active choice. When service members were changing bases, they would need to take a series of enrollment trainings or classes, alcohol and drug abuse counseling, learning about what their benefits were, et cetera. And we inserted into that enrollment process a yes or no choice about whether or not they'd like to sign up for retirement savings. And that was very effective. How big was that impact right away? 
It was a four percentage point increase at the time. That's typical behavioral economics stuff. Exactly. Small but noticeable. Long after my tenure, the government decided to automatically enroll all new recruits into the retirement savings plan, which was the ultimate big win. I think the small pilots can help inspire big cultural change or help build support for an argument that's already underway. So what's interesting about that to me is the story you just told transcended the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And I would have suspected that every trace of anything you did got wiped clean from the government the day the Trump administration took over. Doesn't sound like that's true. No, that's not true. My boss, Tom Khalil, he had worked in the Clinton administration for eight years. He had left for Bush and then he came back for Obama. And he said to me, when Bush came into office, it was as though I had spent the last eight years building this elaborate sandcastle at the beach. And then one big wave came and crashed it, like basically destroyed the whole apparatus. And so his advice to me was, you need to make sure that whatever it is you do outlives your personal tenure at the White House. Bake this work into more nonpartisan parts of government that will be committed to using behavioral science, even if there's not a Democrat in the White House. So Obama did sign an executive order in 2015, which institutionalized the team that I built and issued a mandate to government agencies to apply behavioral insights to policy. Now, that executive order persisted during the Trump administration and continues to exist today. But I made sure not to build this team in the White House. And that's because I knew it would be far more transient. So instead, I found a nonpartisan part of government called the General Services Administration. And we actually built the team there. So that team actually persisted during Trump and continued to do great work with government agencies. They worked on like GI benefits and wildfire assessments and the opioid epidemic. But it is true that I disbanded the White House component on my way out the door. So how awful did it feel to you when Trump won? Here you were having the time of your life, building something amazing, and then it was just taken away from you. What was that like? Yeah, I was completely crushed and devastated. I had built this team thinking if you move away from small tweaks and actually do system level changes, it can have a huge impact. But we had to build so much credibility before we could get to that point of influencing policy that I knew it would only come under a Hillary administration. I was drafting all these policy proposals of things that we would love to see happen. And the campaign was so excited about this. And so to see those dreams crushed was really sad. I was actually more just reacting on a personal level, which is I just felt absolutely heartbroken while also dealing with the fact that I was now going to quit my job and I needed to figure out what my next path would be. I'm surprised the Biden administration hasn't already reinstated a behavioral sciences team. Would you go back to D.C. if they offered you the job? I don't think I would go back. One, because I'm very happy with the work I'm doing right now. And I also think the team would benefit from fresh ideas and fresh blood and a new vision for what behavioral science could look like in the context of the Biden administration. Certainly, all the documents are in place. But one thing I learned when I was in the government is executive orders don't always self-execute. Two years into my tenure, we're briefing President Obama in the Oval, and he ends up signing this executive order. And I remember very naively thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. Life is going to be so much easier mm -hmm. after this change. But 
Actually, no. Certainly, it was easier to now point to a document that had Barack Obama's name on it versus Maya Shunker's name on it. But did we still have to work just as hard to try and convince our agency partners to take on these pilots amidst so many competing demands and constraints and risk assessments? Absolutely. So I think reinstating this team will require finding and making an active effort to recruit people whose sole job is to translate insights from behavioral science to policy. Otherwise, I just don't know if enough activity will happen. It's interesting to me how differently the UK and the US governments approach behavioral economics. In the UK, it was a central part of what Prime Minister David Cameron was trying to do politically. It was high profile, lots of staff and support. And in the US, you had to send an email, a cold email to the White House to get hired. Are you surprised by that difference? I kept pointing to the successes of the UK nudge unit. But of course, every country is like, oh, but we're different. The Behavioral Insights team invited me to attend Downing and to visit their group early on in my tenure at the White House. And I remember thinking, oh, man, this is so lovely. Everyone seems like they're on board with this. And then I came back to my home environment and I just felt like every barrier was sitting in front of me. There were so many times, Steve, where we would have worked on a project for eight months 12 months, two years, and something would happen either politically or due to the budget or someone left and the whole project would be canned. The failure rate was so high all the time. In order to build trust and transparency with the American people, we made sure that in every policy report, we shared all the pilots that worked, that were successful and had positive results, but we also shared all the pilots we ran that had null results or negative results because we wanted to make sure that people were aware of all the activity. I wish we had also shared how many failed attempts we had to change things. Forget about the ones that don't work, but the 90% of the time and effort that goes into things that never even launch, that's invisible to everyone. Maybe it would be counterproductive. My thought is, well, it'd be useful to show people how many failures there are. But I actually think maybe the discouragement effect would be so great that all the people like you who are doing this inspirational work, if they knew how hard it would be in the beginning, I bet a lot of them wouldn't even begin launching off in that direction. So maybe keep those failures secret. I think you're right. I think this can just be your and my little secret, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Behavioral economics has this element of manipulation to it. It's trying to take advantage of people's mistakes and inattention to get them to do what you, the behavioral scientist, wants. Do you have any uneasiness about doing that? I think there's a few safeguards in place that prevent this work from having a deleterious impact. Number one is the one we already talked about, which is there are just limits on how effective any given nudge can be. The second is just a reminder that There's no default list state in the world. So every program and policy has a default design that will influence people one way or the other. So in the same way that if you go to a restaurant, menu options are listed in a particular order. And we know from research that people are more likely to pick the first option they see from a set of options. Now, in the context of government, if you're a veteran and you're asked to fill out a burdensome application form that requires referencing 16 different tax documents, that's a default too. And chances are that those requirements are nudging them away from accessing the benefit. So it's really important to remember what the status quo is and whether that's also serving as an implicit nudge, but it's actually counterproductive. It's not achieving the program's goals. And then I think the third thing is transparency. All the best nudges work 
just as effectively when they're transparent. One of my favorite projects in the wild was around helping to curb the opioid epidemic. And when a doctor's prescribing opioids for the first time, they go into this online system where they can subscribe a, a fixed number of pills for that first prescription. And researchers experimented with changing the default number in the system. So rather than it being, for example, 30 days, they change it down to 14 days. Now, doctors can see that there's this difference, but it makes them a little bit more thoughtful about what that original uh, prescription is. And that led to a significant decrease in prescriptions across that particular healthcare company. When you are transparent with folks, it doesn't backfire. In fact, I think it's a very healthy part of the social contract we're all in. You're listening to People I Mostly Admire with Steve Levitt and his conversation with behavioral economist Maya Shunker. After this short break, they'll return to talk about learning Chinese and Maya's new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. People I Mostly Admire is sponsored by Rosetta Stone. Traveling is so much more meaningful when you understand the language of the place you're visiting. Rosetta Stone, one of the most trusted language learning programs, has helped millions learn new languages and can help you, too. With Rosetta Stone, you'll learn intuitively. You're trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your chosen language. You'll be prepared for real, authentic conversations. Plus, their true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with the Rosetta Stone app, you can learn anytime, anywhere, with customizable lessons as short as 10 minutes. For a very limited time, our listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash admire. That's rosettastone.com slash admire. People I Mostly Admire is sponsored by IXL Learning. Busy parents have enough on their plates without adding their children's homework to the list as well. IXL is an excellent resource for homework help, which is especially nice for parents who are rusty on school info themselves. IXL Learning covers math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help kids really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Backed by research, kids using IXL are consistently doing better. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. A month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring, so now you can get your child the help they need at an affordable price. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And people I mostly admire listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash admire. Visit IXL.com slash admire to get this effective learning program at the best price. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You like to watch new stuff, right? 
Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Today's listener question comes from Elkin Cruz, and Elkin writes, Hi, Steve. Aren't you afraid of survivorship bias? You keep asking successful people for advice when maybe they're not even capable of comprehending what made them get where they are. What about all of those who did the same as them, but still never succeeded? So Elkin, that is a great question. Let me start by making sure everyone knows what we mean by survivorship bias. Survivorship bias occurs when you base conclusions off of a subset of the population who meet a particular set of criteria, assuming that the results will generalize more broadly. For example, let's say you study successful startups, and you find that 80% of them were founded by men under the age of 30. You might be tempted to conclude that young men are the most successful entrepreneurs. But what if you expand your sample to include not just successful startups, but also all the failed ones? And you find that 90% of failed startups were founded by men under 30. Then you'll draw a very different conclusion that young men are less successful on average with startups. They just take a lot more shots at it. So back to Elkin's point. I often ask my guests for advice. Is their advice any good? My guests are extraordinary people, and while their approach worked for them, maybe if more regular people like you and me followed their exact same path, we would have failed miserably. That would be a classic example of survivorship bias. But their advice might be awful for other reasons also. Maybe successful people don't even understand why they've been successful. Or maybe their strategies were useful for the particular challenges they faced, but aren't broadly generalizable. Nonetheless, I really enjoy hearing their advice. I always try to imagine what advice each guest will give, and I'm almost always surprised by what they say. Like when Yul Kwan, the winner of Survivor, suggested that he and others should go live on an island for a while to reconnect with their gratitude for life. Or when Ken Jennings said to make sure not to neglect the things that make you weird. So more broadly, Elkin's question got me thinking. Maybe advice from people who haven't achieved their full potential in life might be part particularly valuable and interesting. We get advice from successful people all the time, but no one ever asks not-so-successful people for advice. So, I'd like to try something. If you were listening to this, and you feel like you are someone for whom things didn't turn out nearly as well as they should have, your talent was squandered or unappreciated, then write me with your answer to the question, what advice would you give to a young person trying to find their place in the world? I will do my best to pull together the answers I receive and report back what I hear. So send me your advice. The address is pima at Freakonomics.com. That's P-I-M-A at Freakonomics.com. And now back to my conversation with Maya Shankar. The answer that surprised me the most so far in talking with Maya is when she said she wouldn't go back to Washington if invited by the Biden administration. It sounded like at the time, she loved her government work more than anything. She only stopped because Trump won. She lost her position. But when forced into a change, now she doesn't want to go back. Interestingly, the only other big change I know of that Maya has experienced in her life 
was when she was forced to abandon a promising career as a concert violinist due to a hand injury. Despite her doctors advising her to quit, she kept playing for almost another year with just one good hand before finally giving up at the age of 17. I wonder if she's someone who's the opposite of me, someone who never quits by choice. I'll start the second half probing her about that. And also, she's got a new podcast called A Slight Change of Plans. It's generating a huge buzz. I want to find out what that's all about. So you were a violin prodigy as a child, a student at Juilliard, practicing five hours at a time and private lessons with the legendary Itzhak Perlman. But for an injury that you suffered, that likely would have been your life's focus. Do you remember what motivated you as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old to work so hard on something like that? Was it being on stage or joy and perfection or enormous amounts of positive feedback from adults? Oh, I think I got a lot of negative feedback <laughs> from adults. Really? If you're studying at Juilliard, your teachers are going to be very critical. I'd have about 10 hours of classes over the course of the day. And every teacher has the ability to tell you, ooh, this thing and this thing and this thing, and ah, you should have practiced this more, whatever. But I think that was actually really useful because it means that I'm very open to being wrong in a lot of situations and updating my beliefs because you're not going to get through that kind of intense environment if you can't take a lot of criticism. Fundamentally, one of the things that I love engaging in are pursuits where your inputs feel like they really matter because they're expressed in outputs. The more you practice, the better you become as a violinist. And that's not true in every discipline. You can try your absolute hardest on this latest startup, but then all these market factors and exogenous factors play a role and you just don't have control over the system. But it felt like I could see the translation of my hard work and see it manifested in better playing. And when you choose a pursuit like that, it can be endlessly satisfying because you're not always concerned with the absolute quality of playing. You're concerned with the delta, how much progress you're seeing over time. And that's certainly relevant in my life today. My husband is Chinese. His whole family in China doesn't speak English. And so one of the activities I took up a few years ago was to try to learn Mandarin. Oh, good luck with that. I tried that too. It's very hard. I am elementary at best. But it is so gratifying to see improvement over time. I understood a sentence my Chinese teacher told me today, and I know that I wouldn't have been able to do that two months ago. So my drive came from just the joy of getting to see myself be better at something. So I adopted two daughters from China, and so I tried to learn Mandarin. I tried really hard. I would say I spent a half an hour a day for a year or more trying to learn Chinese. One of my graduate students was tutoring me, and my ear is so bad. I actually went to one of those online sites where they'd say two tones in Chinese for you, and then you'd have to say which of the tones you had just heard. And I was so bad at it that I decided to start collecting data, and it turned out that I literally could have guessed I was no better than chance. <laughs> I love that. And I found that very discouraging. That really hurt my progress. Have you tried with your Chinese relatives? Because after all that practice, I went to China and I neither understood a single word that anyone said to me or had a single word I said understood. Yeah. So I think in general, I suck at learning foreign languages. I just don't pick things up effortlessly. But Chinese does actually play to my comparative advantage, which is I have a finely tuned ear from my violin days. I would say that my ability to speak is far outpacing my ability to comprehend. So I did go uh, with my husband to China. It was our post-wedding trip. And 
all these relatives were meeting me for the first time. And I was able to produce language and they were able to understand it. But one thing I was struck by were all the regional differences in accents when speaking the language. So I felt completely demoralized after the trip. After I adopted my first daughter from China, I literally did not practice Chinese for one minute for the next three or four years until I adopted my second daughter. Mm. And on the plane to China, I just memorized and practiced really hard four sentences. I'm American. Mm. This is my daughter. I adopted her from the orphanage. And then I had my father with me. And then this is her grandfather. And I really worked to pronounce them well. So every conversation I had in China, I started with my first sentence. And no matter what anybody said to me, I would say my second sentence. And then I would say my third and then my fourth. And it was phenomenal. It worked unbelievably (laughs) well. Every conversation was a huge success. People were like calling their friends over. And the funny thing was the other Americans who were with me watched this happen and watched every conversation be so vibrant. They're like, I cannot believe how much Chinese you know. And I never (laughs) told them that I literally said the same four things in every conversation. (laughs) I do find, actually, I mislead people often because my pronunciation is relatively good because of the musical training. I'll say a few things, and then they assume that I must have some degree of (laughs) proficiency or fluency. And I'm like, no, there's a cap (laughs) on how much I know here. But I live in the Bay Area, so there's a lot of Chinese-speaking folks here. There's been a few times where I've been walking on the street, and a person who might not speak English is lost. They're looking for directions. And they see me and obviously are thinking, this person can be of no help to me. So they're trying to sign to me, how do I get from here to there? And I suddenly start speaking in Chinese. And this beautiful human connection forms almost instantly. And you feel like you're bonding with people, literally having a conversation that you could not have had in the counterfactual world had you not tried to pick up the language. And those interactions have definitely touched me on a deep level. So in the White House and at Google, your job was to change other people's behavior. And in your new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, it's all about how people respond to life changes. Danny Kahneman always told me that people study things that they themselves personally are really bad at. So is Danny right? Are you bad at change? I think I am bad at change. That was probably my big motivation for for launching a slight change of plans. In 2020, I was feeling quite overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change around me. I think many people were feeling that and that you just don't have control. I thought, okay, maybe the specifics of what 2020 is throwing our way are unprecedented. But the human ability to navigate change is not. And it's possible that we recruit a very similar type of psychology when we confront various types of change. And so if we can mine people's stories, we can potentially learn some very valuable things that we can use in our own life. So what kinds of things do you think we can learn from change? I think in my own life, obviously, I had a very privileged form of change, which was simply that I was this budding concert violinist and I couldn't play the violin anymore. But it did lead me as a 15-year-old 
to realize, because you don't really think about these concepts when you're a kid necessarily. At least in my case, I just let my life unfold. And I think it taught me this, this control thing is a bit of an illusion. I am the personality type that loves having control, but it takes a while to fully appreciate that. You have to have a few more experiences with change and unexpected change and unwanted change, I think, for it to really drill in. There's this concept in psychology called identity foreclosure. It basically refers to the idea that we can settle into a self-identity early on and close ourselves off to other alternatives. To your point earlier, I think this is one of the reasons why we as people have a really hard time quitting things and knowing when it's time to move on to the next chapter. I think the fact that I lost the violin at an early age forced me as a child to think of my identity as more malleable. That's served me well as I've gotten older because it means that I attach my identity less to the thing that I'm doing at that particular moment of time and instead attach it to a broader cluster of personality traits and the friends that I have and the activities that I enjoy in life and what my mindset is or my beliefs about things. I don't know if you've had this experience too, where you figure out what does it really mean for me to have a certain identity as a person? And maybe I am just the aggregate of all the things that I think and do. I think it's such a risky strategy to put all your identity eggs in one basket. A good example, so my son was a world-class fencer as a high school student. And probably I had as much identity wrapped around that as he did. It was so much fun. We shared so much time with it. And then he hurt his knee. And Mm. even though it was fencing and he was 14 years old at the time and who cared, it was a devastating loss to me. I just imagine what it's like for the parents of a professional basketball player or a college football player to suffer such a devastating injury. And it was interesting because I hadn't really even understood that about myself, how much enjoyment and identity I really got from being not even the world-class fencer, but the father of a world-class fencer, which is like incredibly pathetic, but it was eye-opening. Thanks for sharing that example, because it does remind me of a conversation I had for my new podcast with Tommy Caldwell. He's considered one of the greatest big wall climbers in the world. He had been taken captive in Kyrgyzstan for six days and nearly died of hypothermia and starvation. He ended up pushing his captor off of a cliff and he had to reckon with the fact that he had done this and he surprised himself. He said he's a meek, softer type and he doesn't believe in killing people. I was just so confident that was going to be the crux of his change story and that that would have informed his climbing identity in the future. Actually, (laughs) the big change moment for him was that he said his body entered survival mode when he was in the depths of this hypothermia, starvation, and that he experienced the greatest mental clarity and focus he had ever had in his life. And so since that day, the true motivator for him has been chasing this mental state. And he once even tried to starve himself on a climb to recreate those conditions. But it's propelled him to become the world's greatest big wall climber. And it has been the thing that he's been searching for and seeking over the course of his life, even outside of the climbing domain. After I had this interview, I thought to myself, Tommy Caldwell is the type of guy who seeks genuine flow states. Climbing is the secondary thing in his life. That's just a means to an end. But that's actually the thing that's very core to his identity and that he can achieve in a bunch of different disciplines or domains. Like you said, it can be risky to attach your identity to a sole pursuit. But if you identify 
features of the activity that light you up. I mentioned earlier in the interview that I love the idea of seeing progress, seeing that delta between how I sounded on the violin yesterday and how I sound today. And if you can identify those features, then you can find them in many spaces in your life. And that, I think, can lead to a sturdier identity. Have you tried playing violin again since your injury, or did you just permanently retire? I haven't played the violin for what feels like ages at this point. And then my producer said, hey, Maya, what if you played the violin for the soundtrack of the podcast? I was thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this, but I called up my parents. They were going to be flying out here to see us after they got their vaccines. And I said, hey, Pops, do you mind just bringing my violin with you? And I opened it up and it was amazing to me. It is a little bit like riding a bike. I lost so much of my technique, but the fundamentals were still there. And I was able to record original music for the soundtrack. So if you hear the first episode of my show, it's a conversation with Michael Lewis in which I give a preview of what's to come in the season of A Slight Change of Plans. You'll actually hear my violin playing at the end of the episode. And it was incredibly fun to do. So I have a theory about leading a happy life. And some of Maya's answers, I think, were consistent with my theory, which is that the single best predictor of who will be most unhappy in life versus those who will be happiest is that the unhappy people need to feel control over things, whereas the happy people accept the fact that much of life is beyond their control. Now, admittedly, I don't have much evidence in support of this theory. It was initially based on casual observation of the people in my life, some of whom crave control and others who don't seem to. A second piece of evidence, again, not particularly convincing, is that over the last 20 years, I've intentionally and pretty successfully transformed myself from being someone who craves control to someone who accepts the impossibility of having control. And I'm much happier now than I was back then. Of course, a thousand other things have changed in my life over the last 20 years, so who really knows? Have others followed my path and let go of the need for control? If so, are you happier now? Has anyone gone the other direction? not needing control when you were young, but having the desire to control everything grow with age. Is there someone out there who absolutely needs to control everything, but does so with a great sense of joy? I'd be really curious to hear your personal experiences on the subject. If you feel like sharing, you know how to reach me. It's Pima at Freakonomics.com. That's P-I-M-A at Freakonomics.com. And I read every email you send. Thanks for listening and take care. People I Mostly Admire is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, and the Freakonomics Radio Book Club. This show is produced by Freakonomics Radio and Stitcher. Morgan Levy is our producer. Dan DeZula and Greg Rippin were the engineers on this episode. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Joel Meyer, Trisha Bobita, Zach Lipinski, Mary DeDuke, Brent Katz, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jasmine Klinger, and Jacob Clementi. All of the music you heard on this show was composed by Luis Guerra. To listen ad-free, subscribe to Stitcher Premium. Thanks for listening. Hi, Nihao. I'm Maya. <laughs> and I speak a little Chinese. And today I'm excited. I'm very excited because I, with Steve, get to chat. The Freakonomics Radio Network. 
Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.